Well, let me ask you to turn back in your Bibles to the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to John. John chapter 17, we're going to read the last section of that passage, and as you turn there, let me say it is really a delight to be here. I was sitting rather whimsically thinking it's wonderful to be part of a preaching team where neither of the preachers actually has an accent. <laughs> and uh, uh, Each of us hears the gospel preached in our own tongue tonight, and uh, I don't really need to do anything slowly to get you attuned to that accent. But I want to read John 17 from verse 20 following. If you're using the church Bible, it's on page 903, I think, page 903. You will know this is the third section of Jesus' prayer that's often been described for centuries, actually, as his high priestly prayer, not because there's any mention in the text itself of uh, the priestly ministry of Christ, except that he is engaging in the ministry of a priest as an intercessor. But it's, it's been called that for centuries, I think, because what is happening in this prayer is that Jesus appears to be following the pattern that was laid out for the high priest's preparation uh, in the Levitical law code, his preparation for the Day of Atonement. Uh, when he prepared in concern, intercession, and even sacrifice in three concentric circles, the first was for himself, the second was for colleagues and family, and the third was for all of the people of God. And this is exactly what Jesus appears to be doing here in chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. He is praying about himself, uh, verses uh, 6 through to the end of verse 19. He's praying for his colleagues, his disciples, his family, his spiritual children. And then in the section we're going to read from verse 20 onwards, he's praying for the whole church of God, not only in a contemporary way to himself, but right into the future. And it's that section I want us to reflect on this evening. So, praise Jesus, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. 
I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pause for a moment of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of having whole Bibles in our hands. And we thank you for the special privilege of having in our hands and in our hearing and by faith in our hearts the knowledge of the intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that as we approach these verses as holy ground to us, overhearing our Savior speaking to you, that you will catch us up with him into your presence, and that even as we hear his words in prayer, through them we may be conscious that he himself continues to speak through his own word. And whatever our diverse and various needs may be, we pray that we may become so conscious of the Lord Jesus as we have already done, visiting Nain, as it were, and being introduced as such a compassionate and powerful Savior. We pray that as we hear his voice in his word, as he preaches to us from his own word, that each of us may find in him the one who is all-sufficient for all of our needs all of the time. And whatever these may be this evening, we pray that we may find them met in Christ and that we may love him more dearly, trust him more fully, and wish to serve him more willingly. So be with us, we pray, and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two considerations have attracted me to this section tonight. Uh, the first was that David Campbell very kindly told me what he was going to be preaching on about Jesus facing death. And that drew me to this passage because in this passage, Jesus is actually facing his own death, but looking obviously beyond that death. And the second thing that drew me to this passage it may seem to be a little idiosyncratic. It is that uh, just in the ordinary course of thinking about nothing very much, a memory came back to mind from my teenage years in Scotland, where from time to time I would see on the notice board of an evangelical church, or sometimes on a board that a man might wear walking through the streets of my native city, with the same text of Scripture from Matthew 22. What think ye? I am old enough to have lived through the King James Version. What think ye of Christ? It was a great evangelistic challenge. But as that flashed back into my mind, the thought also struck me that there is a question that reverses that language but is so important for us to reflect on as Christians. Not what think ye of Christ, but if I can use that language, what 
thinks Christ of ye? And I recognize the possibility that announcing such a text and turning it, as it were, on its head could send shudders through our conscience, since none of us is likely to think anything except he cannot think very much of me. And therefore, those words, I think, could easily be used, I know this would be true of myself, to pound me into the ground. But it's not in that sense that the question came to my mind. The question came to my mind in this sense that I believe we think far too little of what Christ thinks of us. We are inclined to interpret his thoughts as though they were just our thoughts. When in this instance, certainly as this passage makes clear, his thoughts about us are as high above ours about us as the heavens are above the earth. And it's this that I want to try to reflect on together this evening. I remember when I went off to college as a 17-year-old, it never crossed my mind for a moment that my parents would miss me. It never crossed my mind that they would talk about me. It never crossed my mind that they might be sitting staring at each other saying, what have we got to talk about now that the boy has left the house? Never once, I think probably until our own children did the same thing, it never crossed my mind how profoundly they really cared for me. And it strikes me as being very possible for us as Christian believers to think the same way about the Lord Jesus, not least because we don't think so much about ourselves and to lose sight of the way Jesus views us. And that's what's so wonderful about this third section of John 17 because Jesus is praying here not simply for the apostles and their contemporary ministry, but he's praying for the whole church of God in Jesus Christ. And as he speaks to his father in the heightened emotion of these last 24 hours of his life, he focuses in on what is most important and precious to him. I am not in the custom of quoting James Arminius in Reformed church pulpits. But James Arminius said this passage is a transcript of Christ's intercession for us in heaven. And I think that's true. And so what we find in these closing verses, because they include us, tell us something about the disposition of heart the Lord Jesus has towards his people. And this is on the trajectory of the message that has been so helpful to us already, the heart of Jesus towards the widow of Nain and her son is the very same heart of the Lord Jesus towards his children today. And so I want to think about this in two different ways. First of all, to try to think about how the Lord Jesus actually thinks about us. 
What does he say here about us? How does he view us? Well, he prays in verse 20, not simply for his apostles, but for those who will believe in him through their word. That's how he thinks about you. Now, some of you are getting older, and I met you, first of all, 42 years ago, but none of you looks old enough to have heard the apostles preaching. But he doesn't say preaching. He says word. And it's interesting that in this discourse that begins in chapter 13 and goes right through into this prayer, Jesus has already set up for his disciples and for us what he means by coming to believe in him through their word. Earlier on, you may remember, back in chapter 14, he had said, when the Spirit comes, he will bring to your memory everything I've said to you. And when the Spirit comes, he will lead you into all truth. And then later he says, and when the Spirit comes, he will show you things that are to come. He says, you are going to be my witnesses And he's speaking exclusively to the apostles at this point. And in that witness, of course, we are witnesses, but he's speaking exclusively to the apostles at this point. And he says, without detailing what he means, in that witness, the Holy Spirit will also be a witness. And when you put those little clues, when you you draw your pencil through those dots, what do you come up with that Jesus is telling the apostles they are going to do? Where do you find the memory of what he said? Where are you led into all truth? Where do you discover things that are still to come? Where do you see the witness of the Spirit and the witness of the apostles meeting? And of course, the answer is in the New Testament that's open before you. He is praying for everyone who will believe through the apostles' word that will come to them through the conduit of the pages of the New Testament. And it is a marvelous thing, surely, for us to think that that's how the gospel came to us. And to reflect on the various ways and the strange providences of God that eventually brought this, the apostles' word, to us. Some of you in your family Some of you through a stranger. Some of you through a chance meeting with somebody. Somebody through a sense of, where am I going to find truth? And then to begin to reflect on the the innumerable happenstances that lie behind the creation of that chain of God's gospel coming to you from the apostle's word. And it's as though Jesus is is carrying all this in his mind as he looks forward to you and praying for those who will come to believe in him because they have heard the apostles' word. So that's how he thinks about believers. Every single believer as someone he has been preparing for in this very upper room as he's shaping these 11 men to give the word of God to 
the people of God in every place, in every generation, until the end of the age when he comes again in glory and majesty. And that word of the apostles has come to you. But he not only speaks about us in that way, we are those who have come to believe through the apostles' word. But he speaks about us in a sense in a more intimate way, doesn't he, in verse 24, when he prays for us, I desire that they also whom you have given me. Who am I? Isn't that almost the single most important question for young people in the 21st century in the Western world where we are urged to create ourselves, to be a believer and know who you are exactly transforms everything. Who then am I if I'm a believer? Well, the language is here. I am someone the Heavenly Father has given to His Son. And the importance of that language becomes clear to us when we remember Jesus used that language in the discourse about him being the bread of life in chapter 6 and the discourse about him being the good shepherd in chapter 10. But now here in chapter 17, when he's at the high moment of emotion, when of course he describes these disciples and all who will become disciples in the choicest of terms, in the terms that express his deepest feeling for us, And it's here, isn't it? We might dare to say Jesus' favorite way of describing me if I'm his is I'm someone who was given to him by his Father. I'm nothing in myself. And sometimes I feel in myself I'm less than nothing. But I am someone his Father said to him, Jesus giving him to you, giving her to you, to care for, to go for, to live for, to die for, to rise for, to pray for, to come again for, to take home to glory. And that's how we value things, don't we? Um, I mean, what have you kept from somewhere in the past? Maybe some valuable things, but For most of us, the things that we keep have very little value in and of themselves. What gives them value is the answer to the question, who gave it to you? Who gave it to you? I think of the few things I own that were my parents. Why do I keep them? I don't think it's because I'm overly sentimental. I keep them because of who gave them to me. In and of themselves, they're trivial, but they are of immense value to me because it was given to me by my Father. And that's the language that Jesus is using here to to help these disciples who are listening to him. This is amazing that we're able to overhear this prayer. And as he prays to the Father, he allows them to listen so that they may learn how much they mean to him chiefly because 
You're his father's gift to him. And he counts nothing more valuable than what his father gives him. It's amazing. It's not only moving. It's the thing really that enabled the apostle Paul to say, yes, I'm the chief of sinners. But the father gave me to the son and the son of God loved me and he gave himself for me. And the father does not give his son cast-offs. That's how the Lord Jesus thinks about you, if you're his. And if you think about it, in so many other areas of the Christian life, you've eventually learned how you think about things is not the big thing. How he thinks about things, that's what really matters. And yet how reluctant we can be to think this way. How much easier in some ways it is to do ourselves down. How much easier it is for those of us who are preachers to expose sin and need and failure. It takes the Holy Spirit to glorify the Lord Jesus in such a way that we see this is what he thinks about me. This is why he'll never let me go. It's not because of my virtue. It's because I'm someone the Father has given to him. This is a transcript of Jesus' heart and glory, isn't it? This is how Jesus thinks about me if I'm his. But then, woven into this prayer, not only how Jesus thinks about me, how Jesus reflects on us if we're believers, but what Jesus wants for us. And it's very clear here, isn't it? Um, he wants something for us in the here and now, and he wants something for us also in the there and then. What does he want for us in the here and now? Well, he keeps saying it. I want them to be one. I want them to be one. And it's manifest, isn't it? He's not speaking about some institutionalized governmental one church. You could have that without the kind of unity that Jesus is speaking about here. No, the analogy he uses, and indeed the ground of this unity that he points us to, is the fellowship that he himself has with his Father. He is one with his Father in and through the Holy Spirit. And he keeps emphasizing this. He's saying, I pray that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, in verse 21. And he prays in verse 22 that the glory the Father has given him, he has given to us that we may be one even as we are one. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? And he, he repeats this again. It's because of the glory that's been given to us that we can be one. What is this glory? Well, he goes on to explain the glory, what, what, what shines with effulgent beauty in the relationship between the Father and the Son in John's gospel is the immensity of the love the Father has for his son and the immensity of the love the son has for his father. And he's saying, I've given them that glory. 
And you see, he goes on to say that, doesn't he? The reason I've done this is that being one in that way, the world may come to believe that you sent me into the world to be the Savior. What's the, how does that work? It works when people who are not believers come among believers into a living church family, and they may not have the categories to analyze it, but what they see is this. These are people who know they are loved and that that love emerges not from earth but from heaven. And that's the explanation why they love one another. It's not rocket science. There was a time we lived in the uh, great state of Texas in Dallas at the time when the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out somewhere around I guess the early 2000s, and there was a a rather naive mega, mega, mega church pastor recorded in the local newspaper as saying, this movie, this movie is the greatest evangelistic instrument we've had since the days of the apostles. And I remember instinctively thinking, I thought you were the pastor of a church. That's the instrument. The tragedy would be that this was absent from the church. But when this is present in the church, even those who believe they despise that for which the church stands cannot withstand the force of this. That this is how God lives his life. And this is how our lives were meant to be, older and younger. Yes, the church has failed, but in our world, in our world, if you want to see functional family life, love and being loved and loving, then that's what Jesus is praying about. In order that the world may see, see before it comes to understand and believe, The only conceivable explanation for this is that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, and the explanation for these people is that they have been saved by that Son. And thank God that often happens, doesn't it? Um, I think of people saying, coming to a, a funeral service of a believer in a church and, and saying afterwards, I... I had no idea it would be a worship service because they'd been to so many funeral services where people tried to joke their way out of the face of death and had no answer to it. But here there was a sense that the glory that had now been entered by the beloved saint, that that glory, in a sense, had forced its way down from heaven into the people of God to comfort them and lift them up in gratitude and appreciation of the gift that the Lord had given to them. And that's what he's praying for. He thinks about us as those the Father has given to him. And what he wants for us And it's very interesting that he actually says that, isn't it? Especially in the light of what happens in a couple of hours. In verse 24, Father, 
This is what I want. This is my desire. That's the here and now. Now is the there. And then, Father, he says, what I desire is that they should be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And he's, he's praying that those the Father has given to him for whom he's going to die will be kept by him in order to see him there in his glory. And it's clear, if you read this passage from the beginning, that glory is of immense importance to Jesus. He's praying for it. He's longing for it. His desire is not only that he will enter it, but that they will be brought to it to see it for themselves. Now, why does he pray like this? Let me give you seven reasons. Just the reasons, not the explanations. Just take 35 seconds. First of all, he wants you, if you're a believer, to be there because he knows you have seen him in his humiliation. And some of you see him in his humiliation every day of your working weeks. And he wants you to be there to see him not in his humiliation, but in his glorification. Second, he wants you to be there to see that glory so that you will see at last who he really is. King of kings, Lord of lords, exalted above the earth. Third, he wants you to be there to see him in his glory so that at last you will be overwhelmed with this knowledge of how much his father loves him. Fifth, well, actually it's fourth. He wants me to know by being there how much his father loves me too. Fifth, he wants me to know how much I mean to him. I still remember the first winner of the Wimbledon Tennis Championships. He was an Australian, Pat Cash, who kept the royal family waiting by leaping over up the balustrades and everything else in order to greet his team, his coach, his family. Why did he do that? Because they had been with him in his failure. And he wanted them to be with him in his glory. And that's the Lord Jesus. He wants me to know how much I mean to him. Sixth, he wants me to know that it's all been worth it. Whatever I've gone through, the pains, the trials, the rejections, the struggles, that it's all been worth it. And seventh, my friends, if you're a believer, he wants you to be with him simply because he wants you. And that's why he prays. And it's interesting, isn't it, that this prayer in verse 24 is in John's gospel, but it's completely absent from the other three gospels. 
and the prayer he makes within an hour or two of this prayer that's in the other three Gospels is absent in John's Gospel. And I presume John knew those other Gospels and that what's happening here is he assumes that we know the prayer Jesus will soon make. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. That is my desire. I don't desire to find myself alienated from your presence. I cannot possibly, in a holy fashion, desire to sense that I've been abandoned by my Father. I can't desire that, but I'm willing to do it. And you see, that prayer is the explanation for the I do desire in this prayer. And it's the I do desire in this prayer that they will see me in my glory and be with me. That's the explanation of why he was willing to see through what he could not desire. To experience that terrible sense of being forsaken by God. That's what we mean to him if we're his. That's how much he loves us. And as we've already heard this evening, it's very easy to look at a passage like this, passage that we looked at earlier on, and to think that he was like that 2,000 years ago. But haven't we learned from the letter to the Hebrews 13.8 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Now, friends, that is not a way of saying Jesus is eternal. It's not a longhand way of saying Jesus is eternal. That's true, but it's not the truth of that text. What that text is saying is this. Today, in the time of the author of Hebrews, in our own time, today and forever, he is the same as he was yesterday in what the author of Hebrews calls in the days of his flesh. He has not changed. His desire for us has not lessened. His longing for us to see him in his glory, that has not been diluted. And the certainty of this prayer being answered for all the Father has given to him Therein lies our security. And surely we cannot overhear a prayer like this without either thinking, that's the Savior I need, because I need to know. Or thank God he's the Savior I have. And whatever I think about myself, I need to raise my eyes upwards and my ears upwards to overhear him praying for me and saying to his father, Father, you gave them to me and I'll never, ever, ever let them go. And here's how I'm going to use them. And this is the glory into which I'm going to take them. He surely is the savior you need to come and trust, or marvelously the gracious Savior you already have, and simply need to be reassured that you're someone his Father gave to him 
He'll never let you go. Hallelujah. Indeed. What a Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are bold to come to you because you were bold to come on our behalf to your Father. We thank you that you still live to make intercession for us, that you are still able to save to the uttermost everyone and anyone who comes to God through you. We pray you would lift up our eyes that so often are drawn down by our own sin and sometimes by the strategies of the evil one to see only self-condemnation in our hearts. We pray that you would lift up our eyes to yourself to see you striding through this world of death as the same compassionate Savior who raised from the dead the son of the widow of Nain and brought mother and son in happy reunion together. We thank you for this prayer that you have made that will make that real for all those who know you and trust you and love you, that happy reconciliation, and not only reconciliation, but the joyful hand-in-hand praise that we will offer when we see you in your glory and know you as you really are and feel in our whole beings that we are there simply because you have loved us with an everlasting love, died for us on the cross, risen again for our justification, interceded for us at your Father's right hand, and then come in that great day that we expect when you will raise us together to the glory. Lord, fill our hearts with this. This is a dark world. We will be engulfed tomorrow. We will see your humiliation again tomorrow. Help us, we pray, to set our affections on the things that are above where you are and to know that our lives are hidden with you in God. And when you appear in glory by your grace, we will appear with you. Oh, thank you so much for the privileges of hearing about you all through this evening. Keep us close to yourself, we pray. We ask it in your name.